as I was saying, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. We are relatively quickly moving towards the conclusion of 2 Timothy, and obviously, maybe not relatively quickly. Um, my, just to give you a little heads up, I was talking about going into Amos. After this is over, I think we're going to go to Hebrews instead. And so we're going to spend some time in Hebrews after this, if that's all right with everybody. If it's not, that's where we're going anyway. But we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4 uh, this morning. We'll probably save Amos for after Hebrews. So, In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we've come to verse 6. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 8 this morning. Uh, just a little bit of introduction. And if you were at Wednesday evening service this last Wednesday evening, you got a little brief um, connection to this morning's message. Let me say from the get-go that this morning's message is going to be a little bit uncomfortable, I think by nature, by design. Um, it is interesting, if you read the scriptures, and I hope you all do, anywhere you turn the scriptures, you're introduced in this, what is, has been described as this grand historical redemptive story that we call the scriptures, describing God's redemptive story in humanity. You find... In the midst of the story, a peppering of people. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and beyond, you have, you have uh, Adam and Eve, and then you have, you have um, uh, Cain and Abel, you have Seth, and you have all these different people that start showing up. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, uh, and on and on and on. You work your way through, you get... You get Samson, you get Elijah, you get Elisha, you get um, all the various prophets, you get the patriarchs, you get the, um, uh, when you get to the New Testament, you get the disciples, and then you add Paul into the mix, and then you have James, and you have, uh, a and then a variety of other people. Some are, are little bit players in this story this grand, historic, redemptive story. Some are just tiny little bit players, like an Esimus in 3 John. I mean, there's only 15 verses, and he shows up in a couple of them. And then you have some that are massive players in the storyline, like Paul, Abraham. But you have all these players in the story. I don't mean players to degrade them. I'm just using the word. In this grand, sweeping, historical, redemptive story. And I've often said that, and many others have as well, that there's only one hero in the storyline. From Genesis through Revelation, there's only one hero. The rest of these players are not heroes. They're flawed humans, every one of them. There's only one hero. And the one hero is Jesus. He's the absolute hero and the central character in the whole story. I don't care who you pick. None of the other ones are heroes. Everyone has flaws. Everyone has failures. And just about every time, almost every time, the flaws and failures are shown in the storyline. But it is interesting that as you way through the storyline from Genesis to Revelation, every single one of the people you are introduced to serve a purpose. Some of them are really negative purposes, like don't be like this, 
right? There's a variety of those people in, in the scriptures, aren't there? Don't be like this person. These are really bad people. We were introduced to a generic group of them, right? In 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9, there's some people, bit players, right? They're so much bit players, we don't even get names of them. It's just the church in the last days. Full of humans. Don't be like them. On the contrast, you have Timothy, who's absolutely contrasted to the church in the last days. We're introduced to Lois, not Lois Cartledge. We're introduced to Lois. Again, a bit player, right? They mention her, and then they're off of her. We, we really don't know a whole lot about her except for right here. So you find people you shouldn't be like, nobody more classic than Judas, right? Don't be like Judas. And then you find all sorts of people also that are given to us, and I would argue all of them, whether they're really amazing, good people, Paul, for example, or if they're really bad people, Judas, for example, they're given to us for examples. Every single time they're given to us for examples. And as we are students of the scriptures, we ought to sit up and take notice and ask ourselves, well, what, why are these people given to us? Why are they in the storyline? What's the purpose for that, that, that person at that place in this storyline? What do I glean from them? Sometimes they're, they're, they're really there just to enhance something that's being said. In fact, oftentimes that's the case. Enhance negative or positive what's being said. Oftentimes at the same time, they're given to us so that we, the reader, the Christian reader, look at ourselves in the mirror of that scripture and ask ourselves a very important question. And the really important question is, that person is that way because of their interaction with Christ. Correct? If they're good people, and sometimes even if they're evil people. They're that way in the storyline because of their interaction with, their connection with, their knowledge of, their love for, if they're good people, their love for Christ. So the storyline is telling us about this is what is the result of Christ in them. Does that make sense? And it's given to us, I would argue, oftentimes so that we will stop, we will pause and ask ourselves, is Christ in me evidenced, generally speaking, this way? Now, that doesn't mean that every single person needs to be like Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Every person does not need to be like John in the Gospels and in Revelation in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Not every person needs to be, because they have Christ in them, needs to be a, an Esimus. Not every person needs to be Paul. That's not the point. We don't want to color too closely into the lines, right? Because we're all unique and different. At the same time, the general perspectives that are presented are appropriate to ask ourselves, 
is Christ in me that? Does that make sense so far? Or is it not? In other words, when I look at the storyline of the scripture and I see these people who know Christ, who love Christ, I see a general reflection of Christ. I see a reflection of Christ that is kind of cross, cross, at the same time it's unique to that person, it is at the same time crossing the boundaries, and I see a general sameness in all these people who love Jesus in a variety of ways. Unique and general. Or to put it a different way, specific and general. Specifically them, but yet it's general, a common theme that crosses the boundary from person to person to person. This is what it looks like to be in Christ and to be grafted into the vine, to go back to John. To have Christ in us, us in Christ, to know Christ, to be adopted as a son, to be redeemed. This is what it looks like. Which brings us to what is potentially an uncomfortable passage. Because what we have at the end of Paul's life, for all intents and purposes, his last writing, his last biblical writing from prison, 2 Timothy, to, obviously, the pastor Timothy, the elder Timothy, Paul has been exhorting and encouraging and pleading with Timothy not to get sucked into the last to, to the church of the last day. Not to get sucked in and become like them, but to continue to what? Have the reflection of Christ. Isn't that the theme we've seen so far to Timothy every step of the way? And not just to Timothy, the elder, but to the church. Those who are faithful in the church, be careful, be after it. Paul is pleading in this last communication to be careful and examine ourselves and be careful that we are not sucked in, that I am not sucked in, that you are not sucked in, but that you and I are reflecting Christ. Or to steal a term from Second Timothy or from uh, Romans that we're not conformed to this world. We see in Romans twelve he's talking about the world. In Second Timothy he's talking about the church. In Second in, in Romans he says don't be conformed to the world. In a very real, real way we can take that phrase and we can move it into the church and say do not be conformed by the church. You realize that sounds pretty radical, doesn't it? Don't be conformed. To the church in the last days. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you, you'll know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Which brings us to the text this morning, verses 6 through 8. It's a pretty famous text that we should interact with as we consider Paul's story, Paul's part in the historical redemptive story that we call the scriptures. Let's look at it. Here's what it says. Starting in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
We must not take the text out of the context of all of 2 Timothy. Very important that we, we place it into the context. The warning is to Timothy, be careful that you don't become like these other people. Verse 3 of chapter 4, for the time is coming when you will not, uh, sorry, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off to myths. As for you, Paul writes to Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I hope that this week, if I may just pause on this, since, uh, this last two weeks since I wasn't here last week, in those last two weeks you've been chewing on a little bit. What does that mean for you? What does that mean? For you to be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. See, if we go through the text, and we're coming close, very quickly, maybe not very quickly, but quickly to the end of 2 Timothy, if we're not taking time to evaluate and ask ourselves really important questions, like verse 5 that we looked at two weeks ago, if we've let the last two weeks go, now this is where it gets uncomfortable right off the bat, if we've let the last two weeks go, if we were here two weeks ago, and we let the last two weeks go, and we didn't ask ourselves, how am I sober-minded, according to the Scriptures? How am I enduring suffering and willing to endure suffering? How am I doing the work of an evangelist? How am I fulfilling my ministry? If I'm not asking those questions, the reason why I'm not asking those questions after looking at the text, is this. The reason why I'm not asking those questions is because I'm not looking at Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Because if I was, I'd be asking those questions. Because Paul gives these statements for Timothy because he's a guy who is looking to Jesus. It's very evident in the last three chapters. So we're not asking these questions. And, by the way, if I'm not asking the question, I'm certainly not doing it, right? Does that make sense? I'm not wrestling with that. If I'm not wrestling with what does it look like for Steve Hobbs to do the work of, the mi- of, of, of an evangelist, you know what that means? I'm probably not doing the work of an evangelist because none of us are like rock stars of evangelism. May I be that blunt to say that? If I'm not asking what it looks like to fulfill my ministry, I can almost guarantee you that I'm not fulfilling my ministry. If you're not asking the question, what does it look like for me to fulfill my ministry, I can guarantee you you're not fulfilling your ministry. And I can also guarantee if you're not fulfilling your ministry, you're not doing the work of an evangelist, you're not willing to suffer for Christ, you're not sober-minded, with regard to Christ, the reality is because we're not focused on Christ. We're not remembering Christ. We're not seeing Christ as valuable. We're not seeing Christ as worthwhile or worthy of being separated from the church of the last days. We're not seeing Christ as being worthy of being separated from the things of this world. 
And because of that, that we come to verse 6 and following, that Paul turns from Timothy to himself as, I would argue, an example for Timothy, verse 5, what he's called him to. You see, he calls Timothy to present tense, this is how you ought to be, right, in light of Jesus. 6 and following, he's basically saying, by way of example, this is what I have been. So verse 5 is what you ought to be, he's saying to Timothy. And if you're one that looks like Timothy, he's saying, look at me. Now, it's easy to say, and many people have said over the years, well, Paul's being really prideful here. No, he's not. If you read Paul's writings at all, from Romans all the way through to 2 Timothy, here's what you're going to find out. I am who I am by the grace of God. I am who I am because God is merciful to me and has been merciful to me and will continue to be. Who I am, I am because of him. This is not about pride. This is not about pride at all. This is about him re representing to Timothy in this storyline what it looks like. So he's trying to say to Timothy, if you're wondering what it looks like to fulfill your ministry, if you're wondering what it looks like to be willing to suffer persecution and to endure suffering, if you're wondering what it looks like to, to do the work of an evangelist, if you're wondering what it looks like to be sober-minded, Paul says, the best way I can tell you is to look backwards in my life. And again, this is where it gets uncomfortable because Paul wants Timothy to look at his life. Paul wants the people that Timothy's teaching to look back on Paul's life. Paul wants me and he wants you to look on his life. And what he wants is that we compare and contrast. You're not called to be an apostle. And I'm not called to be an apostle. But what Paul is describing to Timothy is not apostolic stuff. Otherwise, he wouldn't be describing it to Timothy because Timothy's not an apostle. I would argue also it's not merely elder stuff because, again, Paul told Timothy to do what? To teach faithful people who will teach others also these exact same things. So what Paul is expressing to Timothy in his story It's for your instruction and for my instruction and for your evaluation and my evaluation to ask ourselves, is this in my life at all? So what does he say? Verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Interesting statement. It's a layered statement, if I may put it that way. When he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, one of the first things he's obviously implying is what? He's, it's already, what's already happening? He's being poured out, that's true, but that's just a metaphor. In other words, yes, he's getting ready to die. The pouring out as a drink offering is a sacrifice. And it's, although the, the drink offering, you could say, well, it's not dying because it's not a lot living. It is dying. It is being destroyed. The picture of a drink offering is being poured out on the fire. It smokes. 
being destroyed. And so when Paul says he's, be, he's already being poured out as a drink offering, he's saying, I am dying, ready, for the glory of Christ. It's a drink offering. This is not merely, in other words, what Paul is talking about here is something radically different from what you and I may go through as humans. You see, we all are dying. Right? I don't care how young you are, we're dying. Our doom, physically speaking, is sure unless Christ returns. It's sure. But the natural way of things is what's not what Paul's talking about here. Saved, unsaved, really righteous person, really evil person, all are going to die. Paul is talking about, firstly, is this idea of his dying is not merely talking about just the natural processes. He's dying for the glory of Christ. He's in prison, we already know, for the glory of Christ, right? He's in prison for the glory of the gospel. And he's saying, this is reaching its final conclusion for me. Its final conclusion is not merely a physical death, but it is because I've been willing to suffer, previous verses, my life has been heading for this time, a dying for Christ. Does that mean everyone needs to die for Christ? No. As in, not everyone needs to die via persecution, penalty, prison. Not everybody has to die that way. But what Paul's describing as he, when he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, what he's talking about is his life has been heading toward the glory of God, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. The cost didn't matter because what mattered was that Christ is glorified. I love the, the fact that he chooses the drink offering because the whole purpose for the drink offering was to pour it out along with a sacrificial lamb. You poured it out on the fire and it smoked and was a pleasing aroma, the scriptures describe, for God, to God as it would smoke in the fire. Now, it's interesting that it was oftentimes connected to the lamb. Which brings us to the deeper point when he says, when he says that he's already being poured out as a drink offering, he's referencing this reality. His life was totally and absolutely, inseparably connected to the lamb. What lamb? The lamb that was sacrificed. The lamb of God. Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, as the lamb was sacrificed, I am being sacrificed as a praise 
God. Coming alongside the sacrificial lamb. Being poured on the same sacrifice for the glory of God as a pleasing aroma. So what Paul is saying, how's this, uh, how do we put his skin on this? What he's talking about is this. The sacrificial lamb was Jesus. Jesus Christ died to bring light into a di- dark world, did he not? He, he is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. And so what Paul is saying is, my life, when he says my life is already being poured out, he's saying that my life has counted for one thing and one thing only. It was all for the lamb. Or another, another way to put it is, it was all for the gospel. You see, you can't say, and I can't say, that my life is already being poured out as a drink offering if my life is lived separated from the gospel, Christ, the Lamb. If, if my life is summed up by huge swaths of time that have nothing to do with the Lamb, I can't be a drink offering. I'm being poured out. All of us are being poured out, aren't we? That's, what I, that's my point about natural life leads to natural death. You're still being poured out, but you're not being poured out as a drink offering. Just one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You've heard the, that old phrase? I think it was a song, wasn't it? A drink offering must be poured out on the altar where the lamb is. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to describe here is his life in its entirety since salvation, since that road to Damascus has been summed up by a drink offering. Now what's interesting is when you pour out a drink offering onto the altar where the fire is burning up the burnt sacrifice, is it all becomes intermingled. Nothing stands by itself anymore, does it? The smoke of the drink offering, the smoke of the lamb just mixes together. Inseparable. It cannot be identified by itself. That's why I say if we live our lives with huge swaths that have nothing to do with Jesus, have nothing to do with, with the gospel, have no gospel evidence in it at all, we cannot actually see ourselves in the storyline already. We just hit the first part. We can't see ourselves in the storyline. This person who at this point in time is given to us for our examination, our consideration, our evaluation, and we ask ourselves, am I a drink offering? That's what he wants us to ask. That's what he wants Timothy to ask. Because he's saying to Timothy, this is what it looks like. To be, verse 5, sober-minded, enduring suffering, doing the work of evangelists, fulfilling your ministry. What does it look like? It looks like being a drink offering that is inseparable from the lamb offering. It's intricately interwoven, inseparably interwoven with gospel. With the lamb. Is that you? Is that me? That's what he's wanting us to wrestle with. 
am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And then he goes into the past tense looking backwards into the story of his life from the road to Damascus to this point. Paul's not perfect. He's not the hero at all. Paul is only saying this is what it looks like, Timothy, when we understand and know Jesus. This is what life looks like when we, re when we remember Jesus, chapter 2, verse 8. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. This is what it looks like when we're not ashamed, chapter 1, verse 8, of the testimony of our Lord. But instead, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us according to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, which is, uh, for which I was appointed as a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. So we're not, this is what it looks like to not be ashamed. Christ, for I know whom I've believed and am convinced he's able to guard until the day was entrusted to me. And he says, follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me and of faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit and trust you. We go on and on and on. This is what it looks like to be that. As Paul looks back on his life and wants Timothy to look back on his life, and he starts off by saying what? Verse Seven, I have fought the good fight. Now, a lot of people have argued that this, I fought the good fight, is a athletic metaphor. I don't think it is. I really don't. Fighting in the scriptures, in, especially in Paul's writing, is oftentimes not connected to, to athletics. Fighting in Paul's writing is more often than not connected to war. And in the closer context, the fight that Paul's talking about more than likely is chapter 2. Notice chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Share in the suffering, what? Share in the suffering, what? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's most likely what he's talking about. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, referencing he has been a good soldier for his general. He has heard what his general has said. He's responded to him. Everything is interpreted by who the general is and what he's commanded him and what he has accomplished and what his goal is and what his kingdom is about. And suffering is part of it. And so he says, as I've looked back on my life, I've fought the good fight. Now, we don't have time to do this today, but what Paul wants Timothy, what Paul wants me, what Paul wants you 
to do is to reflect backwards on all we know about Paul. Because that's going to inform us what, about being, what a good soldier is and about what it looks like to really fight. If I may just pause on this for a second. He says, I fought the good fight, which implies something really dramatic. And you know what that is? It's summed up by one word in that statement. Actually, two words, but one specifically. The word the. Because that's a definite article. It's an ex exclusive statement. When he says, I fought the good fight, he's making an exclusive statement. There's only one fight he's talking about. Only one. You realize that? And that fight exclusively is summed up by the very next word. The second important word in the text, in this phrase. The good fight. That's an exclusive statement. And what Paul is trying to get Timothy to, get to understand is that every other fight is bad. Do you realize that? If, in other words, what Paul is telling Timothy is there's only one fight that's good. Only one. And what fight he's talking about is a gospel fight. Do you realize that? It's a gospel fight. Any other fight is bad. And why is it bad? Because it's a distraction from the good fight. You see, there's a good fight. There's the good fight. And then there's a whole host of other fights. They're not worthy being fought about, but there's a whole host of unworthy fights that are available to us all the time, aren't there? Can I just pause this for a second and ask, ask you to ask yourself a question that I've been asking myself for a long time? And that is this. What do you fight over? And by the way, it's not necessarily just a physical fight. Arguments, quarrels. What do you fight over? It's interesting. I find it sadly interesting how we as Christians will fight and quarrel over all sorts of things that have nothing to do with gospel. We Christians can come together, and we can start to talk, and we start disagreeing, and we start arguing, we start fighting, we start quarreling, we start debating, whatever the case may be, over all sorts of things. And there's no gospel presence. None. No gospel alluded to. None. No Christ. Zero. Ever. In those fights. And we never even pick it up right from the get-go. There's only one good fight. One. I mean, who cares? If I just use a silly argument that I'm just bringing off the top of my head. 
who cares if you like sushi or don't like sushi? Right? Does it matter? At the end of the day, does that matter? But we quarrel over those things. Don't we? Now, maybe it's not sushi for you. Maybe it's something else. Favorite car. Favorite food. Favorite sports team. Favorite politics. Favorite this. Favorite that. Uh, things you don't like. Whatever the case may be. We fight and quarrel over things like that. And there's no gospel anywhere. Is there? You see, for Paul, that, that's just foreign to him. Why? Because he's a drink offering. And a drink offering is dedicated to the lamb. It's all about the lamb. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 11 says that very important phrase I've said so many times. All things are from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever. Amen. End of discussion. So be it. That's what it means. And for us, we get into all sorts of crazy things, don't we? And we jump in in a heartbeat. If person A says, well, I like, we do what? I don't. And we do it in a second with both feet, don't we? time, if I may take a text from another passage, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Isn't he? He's standing there knocking. There's only one good fight. When in reality, shouldn't be, I like, somebody says, well, I like Trump. Just throwing Obvious recent discussion. I really like Trump and his position on health care. Can I just ask you a quick question? What does that do with Jesus? Wouldn't that be an interesting way to start a conversation with another believer? How can we see that in light of Christ and the gospel? I didn't confront them. I just asked a question. Now you say, well, yeah, that's kind of weird, Steve. You know why it's weird? You know why it's weird? You know why it feels really strange? And you look at it and you say, ah, come on, Steve. You know why it's strange? Because we get involved in all the wrong fights too often. You see, if we got, in the right, if we got involved in the right fight all the time, then it wouldn't feel strange. It wouldn't feel odd. It would feel normal. It would be like, Absolutely, let's talk about Jesus. Yeah, Trump may be right, Trump may be wrong, but w listen, I, I remember, if I'm going to use this illustration, I remember back when the whole thing with the border crossings, illegal aliens first kicked off, and Christians everywhere were like, rah, 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 and I said, you know, I have a different view on the whole border issue. And they said, what's that? I said, on the one hand, yeah, I think that maybe we ought to figure out a way to not have such a porous border. And we, I don't know, I, it's above my pay grade trying to figure out exactly what we should do, but maybe we should have a, I think we should probably have a way to ha not have as porous of a border. But in the interim, you know what's really cool? Well, what's that? 
God's bringing all these people for us to tell about Jesus. That's really cool. And everybody's like, what? Same thing with, with when they were talking originally before the, the, um, the uh, outlet malls were coming in. There there's there a possibility that they were going to have a, uh, a, um, a casino there. And people were up in arms. And I said, you know, I don't really want to have a casino because it tends to lower property values and crime comes in. Oh, it's just a real mess. But you know what? If they open it, you know it would be really cool? You know it would be really cool? Well, people are like, what? There's nothing cool about that. There absolutely is something cool. God's going to bring all sorts of people to our doorstep so they can hear about Jesus. That's pretty amazing. And most Christians look at me like, what? You see, that's what happens when we're getting involved in all the wrong fights. We're getting all jacked up over the wrong things. Paul, he looked back at his life from Damascus to the end. He said, you know what? By the grace of God, I fought the good fight. That's what a good soldier does. He doesn't get entangled, entangled with civilian affairs. And what Paul wants us to do as a leader is to wrestle with it and say, well, where am I on this? I fought the good fight. I finished the race. Interesting statement. Uh, he oftentimes will go to a, uh, an athletic metaphor. He was dealing with very athletically minded people. He says, I finished the race, well, which ties us directly back to chapter 2 when he says in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And the biggest rule is what? The biggest rule for this race, the race, because you notice, he said in verse 7, I have finished, what's the next word? The race. Again, not just talking about I've lived a full life. The race is the race of the gospel. It's the race for God's glory. He said, I have finished the race. I've run it according to the rules. And there is only ultimately one rule. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's the race. The race for God's glory. That's it. And Paul, by the grace of God, looks back on his life and he says, I have finished the race. He's crossed the finish line. He's received the wreath. ran it according to the rules. He knew it was from him, through him, to him, to him be glory. Forever, amen. He finished the race. He wraps it up in verse 7 by saying, I've kept the faith. What's he trying to get across? I've kept the faith. This does not mean, when he says I've kept the faith, it does not mean that he has his theology down pat. It does not mean he's got the seven major aspects of, of, of systematic theology and he can rattle it off. I've kept it. 
I got it. I got it locked up. That's not what it means. When he says, I've kept the faith, he means he's preserved it. He's protected it. He's lived it. The faith has had its effect. When he says he's kept the faith, it means that in the keeping of it means he hasn't squandered it. That's the alternative. Kept it, squandered it. What do we, how do I get that? Because you have, in chapter 1, you have the, the church in Asia, which is presented as doing what? Squandering the faith. They've gotten distracted into all sorts of other things. They've lost track of the faith. They've squandered it. You've got 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, the church of the last days. They've squandered the faith. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They've gotten distracted into all sorts of other things. They've squandered the faith. And in squandering the faith, they've squandered Christ. When he says, I've kept the faith, I'm not like them, he's saying. The fire in my belly, or to, as Jeremiah puts it, the fire in my bones is hotter now than it's ever been. I've kept the faith. I don't care if my times are good or my times are horrifically hard. I love Jesus, and it oozes out of every pore of my being by his grace. I'm not like 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. I'm not like this church, these, all these churches in Asia who turned away. I'm not like the, the church at the end days in chapter 4, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's not me, Paul says. And it best not be you, Timothy. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of evangelism. Fulfill your ministry. If you don't, Timothy, it will be you. You will squander your faith. You will. Now, if you sit here already and you say to yourself, yeah, Steve, I'm not that. What do I do? I'm not that. I squandered it. This is where it gets real uncomfortable. As you look at this, do you see you in 6 and 7? Do you? Do you see yourself in 6 and 7? Very important question. Do you see yourself in 6 and 7? You, I know for, Timothy, for, for Paul, he's looking backwards. We're still in the middle of it, right? Well, we may, I mean, we, we may be being poured out. We just don't realize it yet. But we're in the middle of it. But if we're not looking like it now, we're not going to look like it at the end. Does that make sense? Unless we repent and believe and follow and we're sober-minded because we know Jesus and do our suffering because Christ is worth it. 
to do the work of evangelists because we are absolutely enthralled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We fulfill the ministry because we can't in our minds comprehend not fulfilling the ministry. Because our joy is found in Jesus. If that's not you, then at least time to sit up and take notice. Because what Paul says next, if this is uncomfortable, what Paul says next is downright shocking. I want you to hear what he says next. Verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for uh, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. <coughs> this is where it gets super uncomfortable. Notice in verse 8, the very first word, at least in my ESV, says, henceforth. Some of your translations may say, therefore. Either case, very important word, crucial word, absolutely essential word for Paul. For Paul, what he says is, it's because of this, verse 6 and 7, that there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. In other words, if it wasn't for 6 and 7, there wouldn't be 8. Do you realize that? That's what Paul's saying. If for me, in my life, there weren't 6 and 7, there wouldn't be 8. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. In other words, if 6 and 7 was not real for me, if 6 and 7 were not real in my life, in other words, if in my life I am not a drink offering, intermixing gospel, intermixing with the Lamb, inseparable from the Lamb, if for me I'm not fighting the good fight, I'm caught up in all the other fights, but not the good fight, I am not finishing the race, I'm not running the race according to the rules, not keeping the faith, squandering the faith, the implication of the statement by Paul in verse 8 is then, there is not for me a crown of righteousness. If you are not 6 and 7, there is no crown of righteousness waiting for you. We desperately need to hear this. It's incredibly uncomfortable. We desperately need to hear that. Now for Paul, please don't miss the point. He's not talking about a work salvation. Because I did this and this and this and this and this, therefore, I'm getting this. Although the first reading of it, you'd say, well, he's talking about work salvation. No, read the entirety of Paul's writings, Romans 1 through all the way to 2 Timothy 4. And you know what you find out? It's summed up so easily in, I work because he works in me, right? I am at work because he is at work in me. Anything I do is because he's in me, working in me, so those things are done. Does that make sense so far? In other words, Romans, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace we are saved through faith, and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of 
works, lest any man should boast, which is exactly the same thing Paul's saying here, although you don't pick it up unless you listen real carefully. Because the very next verse says, we are created unto good works that he predestined beforehand that we would walk in them. Paul walked in them. The question is, why did he walk in them? Because chapter 2 of Ephesians, God took him who was dead in his trespasses and sins, Paul, Saul, and made him alive, right? And gave him the faith to believe, and the faith that he gave him is the same faith he gave you, and the same faith he gave me, and that faith does what? It transforms us, gives us a new heart, so that we no longer desire the, to fold it back into 2 Timothy chapter 4, the old fight. We no longer desire the running, the old way of running that is not according to the rules. We no longer desire being a really miserable, bad, treasonous soldier. We now glorify Christ because of what he has done and is doing and will continue to do in our lives. That's what believers are. And so what Paul is saying here in a very real way, when he says at the end of his life, he's challenging Timothy and me and you to look back on Paul's life and say, it's because of I was dead, he made me alive, he gave me faith so I could believe, and he saved me and transformed me. And the result of that, I love because he first loved me. I serve, I glorify, I fight, I run, I keep the faith. And for Paul, I did in all of those. As the evidence that I am truly saved. And as a result, you see, that happened, all these things in 6 and 7 happened because of Ephesians 2. And as a result, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Because of that. You see, if there, in other words, for Paul, if there was none of the 6 and 7 thing, then there was no Ephesians 2 thing. 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7 is evidence that, se- that Ephesians 2 was there. No 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7, no Ephesians 2. In other words, no 2 Timothy 4, 6 and 7, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Could I add to that? If you're just dinking around in the 6 and 7 of chapter 4, for any number of reasons, if you're just dinking around in it, most likely dead in your trespasses and sins. Because what Paul, what God says, what Christ himself said in John was what? If we bear fruit, he will prune us so that we will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, you can dink around and have the appearance, right? 
You can have a form of godliness, but deny its power. That's the dinking around stuff, isn't it? By very nature, that's what it is. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Well, what does he say about those kind of people? They're not a henceforth kind of people. They're just not. There's no henceforth for them of a crown of righteousness. Now, just to clarify it even further, just to clarify it even further, he says, henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, begs the question, what is the crown of righteousness, doesn't it? Now, a lot of people have said a variety of things about that. I'm going to take a little different tact on that. Some people have said, yeah, you'll get a crown, and it references back to uh, Revelation where they throw the crown at Jesus' feet. Um, other people talk about a variety of other things. I think the crown of righteousness is something radically different and radically better. When you're saved, you receive righteousness, right? But you're given a righteousness according to Philippians that's what? Not your own, right? It's an alien righteousness. You've heard me say it over and over and over again, right? You've received a righteousness that's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness of Christ that he gave you. He, the theological term is he imputed it to you. His righteousness, so that when God views you, he sees Christ, right? He took on, he, your sin was imputed to Christ. So he, That's why I say he stood in your place, you stood in his. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. What he's talking about, I believe, is this. You received his righteousness when you were saved. But in glory, you will go beyond just having his righteousness because the crown of righteousness, I would argue, is Christ himself. You now have his righteousness. The crown is like the pinnacle, the best of it all. You will receive Christ himself, the Christ of the righteousness you've already received. In other words, you've received a deposit, right? Of what is yet to come. Then we will see him face to face. What he means when he says you will receive a crown of righteousness, some people have said, well, some people will get there and will receive the crown of righteousness. Others will get there and they just won't get the crown of righteousness. Garbage. We either get the crown of righteousness, which is Christ himself, so we have his righteousness and him in fullness, face to face, fellowshipping together. We have nothing but separation. Paul says, Timothy, and what he says to you and me, is that's what I got coming to me by his grace. Because I received his righteousness. I was made alive. I was saved. I received his righteousness, and in receiving his righteousness and the new heart that comes along with it, I found myself desiring to proclaim him, to suffer well for him, to run the race for him his glory and henceforth there is now <clears throat> as a result of that there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord 
the righteous judge will award to you in that day. If you don't get that, you get judgment. I want you to notice, we'll wrap it up with the last phrase. And not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. That crown of righteousness is not just for Paul. It's for every single one who loves his appearing. Which begs the question, two questions actually. Question number one, what does it mean to love his appearing? It's a very important question. What does it mean? Love is appearing. What it means is that I'm longing for it. I'm looking for it. I'm planning for it. I'm hoping for it. I'm being consumed about it. I can't wait for it to come. You know, over at our old church, or the, let me change that, over at our old church building, <clears throat> Most of you, many of you had to cross French Creek at the uh, covered bridge in order to get to the in order to get to the church. The first day of April, you see a whole bunch of people that are getting there. A lot of them get there the day two days earlier, get set up for what? Trout fishing. They've longed for it. And the evidence is there, isn't it? They've been hanging out at French Creek State Park or French Creek Outfitters. They've been buying lures and flies. They bought their license ahead of time. They 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 longed for it. They planned for it. They organized. They they packed for it. They had everything together long before. They couldn't wait till opening day came. And so maybe even for some of them, a couple days early they got there. It was on their calendar all year long. They couldn't wait for it to come. If you don't believe it, go down there and hang out with them. Right, Ken? You can hear it, can't you? You can hear it in their talk in the days and weeks ahead of time. You can hear it. It's everywhere. They're longing for it. <clears throat> and they go and they catch stock fish that don't even taste all that good. What's my point? Something silly like that, and you see people longing for it. It consumes them for days, doesn't it? Consumes them for days. People get in fights over the best hole to catch fish in. They were thrown in there the day before, or maybe five days before. The, the picture that Paul is trying to present here, when he says, all those who love his appearing is the idea that they love his appearing. That is, they're anticipating it. They're planning it. They're figuring out everything they possibly can figure out with regarding it. And they're, they're planning their life according to it. Their life is consumed with that event. We all know that. You love vacation. You love going to the shore. You know what that's like. Your world resolve, revolves around getting the money together and getting the plans together and getting the reservations together and on, on, on. That makes sense, doesn't it? Right? You long for it. 
Can I just ask you a quick, quick question? Is Christ more valuable than a wicked soul? Now, the easy answer is, well, yeah. No, no, I'm asking about the evidence of it. Is Christ more valuable than a wicked soul? Is Christ more valuable than spending time with your children, your grandchildren? Is Christ more valuable to you than anything that you hold dear? Christ more valuable. Why is it such an important question? Here's why it's such an important question. <clears throat> because the only ones who receive the crown of righteousness, the only ones who receive the crown of righteousness are the ones who love his appearing. You don't love his appearing. You don't long for his appearing. It's not the focus. All things from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. That's not it for you. And you don't find yourself repenting of that? No crown of righteousness. Now I know. I know if what I'm saying is really true, the narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. And I didn't make that up. That's in the scriptures. But what he's saying is the, na the way is narrow. And it's only for those who have fought the good fight that will get there. It's only for those who have run the race or completed the race who will get there. It's only for those who have kept the faith that will get there. Everyone else, they don't get there. And they don't get the crown of righteousness. They just don't. about you but I want the crown of righteousness what do we take away from this a couple things we could take away from this number one <clears throat> if you don't see yourself in this text that's not okay that's not okay if you don't see yourself in the text today is the day of salvation If you see yourself marginally in this text, today is the day of salvation and or repentance. It is. If you've had the word preached to you, taught to you for years and years and years, and you find yourself still just dinking around, could I just say this? Be afraid. Be afraid. It's appropriate to be afraid. And run to Jesus. Because if we confess, he forgives. If you have found yourself, rather than running the, the race, fighting the good fight, you're doing something else, that's absolutely offensive to a holy God. And yet he forgives. Swiftly. Beautifully and completely. Come to him. What else do we take away from this? A couple things. We're in the middle of it. 
We're in the middle of life somewhere. <coughs> but in repentance, I would argue we need to change our thinking and align it to what Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy, by his grace. I think it needs to be central in our praying, God, change my mind, change my heart, so that this is me. Protect me from 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. Protect me from 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Protect me from the church in Asia. Protect me from that. Protect me to the crown of righteousness. Help me. Change my heart. So I'll run well. So I'll fight well, the good fight. So I'll keep the faith. Change my heart so that I will recognize that there's already been too much time for me to be drinking around. I need a cleanse. To be an instrument of your praise and an instrument of your grace and your glory. If you find that you see yourself in the text, that is, verses 6 and 7, then you should see yourself also in 8. But what do we take away from this? Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. I know this is a painful, challenging text. And it's easy to say, what's the point? The point is... Jesus, don't lose heart. Hebrews chapter 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God so that you do not lose heart. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews said. Yet, when we get into Hebrews, you're going to find there's a lot of painful things in Hebrews as well. There is. Don't lose heart. The painful things are the clear demonstration of God's hope to you. That he hasn't given up calling you to himself. If you are in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, press on towards the high calling of Christ and God. Consider all the past. Philippians chapter 3 is dung so that you may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, so that you will be resurrected. There's hope in Jesus. For Paul, it wasn't hope in how well he ran, because it's not up to the one who runs or works, but it's up to the one who shows mercy, Paul says in Romans. But when God shows mercy, this is what happens. This is what happens. This is what God does in our lives. And why do I share this with you? Because of the next passage in, that we're studying in 2 Timothy, yes, but also because it's too easy to deceive ourselves as thinking we're all, all right when we can very easily just be the Asian church. Too easy to convince ourselves we're doing all right because we're looking at the wrong standard. We're like everybody else in the church when we're supposed to be like Timothy. But you, Timothy, in spite of the rest of the church, but you, cling to what you know. Because ultimately there should be a crown of righteousness for those who do. Because the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Press on. Glorify Christ. Know him. 
enjoy the time together. And you will be blessed beyond your wildest imagination that day by Christ. And there will be a family wedding. God guarantees it. But he is a promise keeper and God. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy to be deceived. We can be deceived by ourselves. We can be deceived by our church. Both are clear in 2 Timothy. Thank you for this little story of Paul and of Timothy. I pray that you will help us, each one of us, Open our eyes to see Lord, I pray you'll help us to identify the good fight. Help us to identify the race to be run. Help us to cling to the faith by your grace. So much so that our lives and your life intermingle where they cannot be separated. Where people see us and they see you. People hear us, they hear you. People know us and they know you. So I ask you, Lord, to change us. So that we will be instruments in your hand for your glory and your praise.